DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. On today's program, it's gloves off as Turkey's presidential election goes to a second round. Hopes fade of finding those still missing months after Turkey's February quakes. Neither the district office nor the governor's office helped us in any way. I'm looking for my son. I'm looking for my soul. I'd like the government and the state to help me in this matter. I beg you. And as Georgia sidles up to Moscow, what's next for its EU membership hopes? That's why I call treasonous what our government is doing now. Instead of lobbying that we are natural and historic part of Western civilization, they are alienating us from our allies. Those stories and more coming up on the program. A new direction for Turkey, a return to secular values, the unpicking of years of autocracy. That's what many Turks hoped for as the country's presidential election approached last weekend. It looked as though voters would punish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan for years of economic and currency crisis, along with the rolling back of democracy and even the lacklustre response to the earthquakes in February. But opposition leader Kemal Kılıç Ulu failed to resonate with enough voters to beat Erdogan in the first round, meaning a runoff election will now be held on May the 28th. I asked DW's Turkey correspondent Dorian Jones why so many voters had unexpectedly grown anxious of change. This country has been ruled by Erdogan for more than two decades now. This is what many people in this country only know, uh, through better or worse. This is the man that has been at the helm. Even though there were concerns about what the situation is in the country, there was a reluctance to abandon him for the unknown. Given the fact that the challenge of Kuluc to Orlo didn't really lay out much of an economic policy other than saying it would not be like Erdogan's, they just stuck with what they knew. And that does sometimes happen in economic crisis. On top of that, I think that also uh, Erdogan focused very hard in the last week on nationalist issues, accusing Kuluc to Orlo of supporting Kurdish separatists that have been fighting the Turkish state for two decades. Kulishtolo in the last 10 days of the campaign did secure the support of the main pro-Kurdish party and that somewhat undermined support from Turkish nationalists and that was always a problem for Kulishtolo. He has a broad coalition of secular people, Islamists, Turkish nationalists and also uh, pro-Kurdish uh, nationalists as well and maintaining a balance there was a major challenge and I think that was a factor also uh, in the last few days of the campaign where Erdogan did secure a lot of traction on attacking uh, Kulishtolo for his support from Kurdish parties. Now, many expected this vote to be a reaction to the lacklustre government response to the earthquakes in February. Did that show up in the election results, especially in the south of the country where the quakes struck? Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, in fact, where these earthquakes struck was in many ways one of the biggest, strongest voting bases of Erdogan. In the previous election, they voted by a margin of 40% in favour of Erdogan, in one case 50%. But in this election... While the support for Erdogan did fall, and quite a lot in some cases, by 10 points or so, they still overwhelmingly supported Erdogan. And that did cause a reaction there. There was an expectation that, uh, given the fact that the government was so strongly criticised over its handling, people would abandon Erdogan. But they didn't. As I spoke to um, a supporter of Erdogan for more than 20 years, she said, yes, change is a good idea. And I was thinking about changing. But she said, at the end of the day, 
there is this Erdogan mentality that he always delivers for the people. Down in the earthquake region, again, there, especially given the nature and the scale of the reconstruction, there was this, I think, looking again to Erdogan to deliver. And then going into the runoff, is it merely a case of who is going to pick up the 5% of vote share from the knocked-out candidate in the first round, Sinan Oan? Yeah, that's going to be a key factor, it seems. Sinan Oan is, uh, he secured 5%, and that is the, the key votes that Kuluc Toğlu does need. Now, this man comes very much from the Turkish nationalist wing of, uh, of politics, and he, he made it very clear that if he was going to support Kuluc Toğlu, Kuluc Toğlu would have to abandon his uh, links with the Kurdish vote. And the problem for Gulush to all is he needs both. And how is he going to square this political circle, as it were, is the biggest conundrum facing him. And we got an indication that his first speech in the presidential runoff, where he's definitely took a very hard line towards the presence of, of refugees in Turkey. Turkey's hosting over five million or so refugees, mainly from Syria. He says they have to go. He also gave a very strong statement saying that he's going to defend the Turkish homeland. And that was seen as a, a gesture to Turkish nationalists. Now, will that be enough for Sinan Erdogan to shift his support to Kulishtolo, it remains to be seen. And always the problem if Kulishtolo goes too far, he then risks alienating the Kurdish vote. And Dorian, everyone is focused on the presidential election, but there was also a parliamentary election last weekend. What is the significance of the big gains made by Erdogan's party in parliament? Yeah, that is in many ways Erdogan's trump card now going into the second round because he's already making the, the line, taking the line that basically vote for me for continuity. You need basically the same person uh, running the parliament as through his uh, ruling AKP party and me at the helm in presidency. You need both the president and the parliament aligned together. And that is the line he will be taking through this campaign. And that is the big challenge facing Kulich to all, or basically the fact to try and persuade the electorate to vote for a president facing a parliament from another party, which would run the risk of gridlock and possible political chaos. And that, in many ways, is why Erdogan is seen as a strong favourite in the second round. So then finally, it's looking increasingly likely that Erdogan will get his third term as president. What policies will that mandate allow him to set in motion? And what will that do for national unity? Well, I think there's a lot of concern uh, about where does Turkey go from here, given the fact that this parliament is the most right-wing parliament that Turkey has seen in decades. It has uh, a radical Islamist party that has uh, that had passed alleged links to Islamic terrorism in Turkey. Uh, that was part of Erdogan's coalition. You've seen very hard right-wing Turkish nationalists, and with Erdogan's own AKP party, they have an overwhelming majority in parliament. That will be a mandate for Erdogan to carry out his policies. What those policies are, no one really knows. I think the biggest focus will be on the economy. There is fears that if Erdogan continues with his unorthodox policies, then the Turkish economy will go into crisis and there could be even a currency collapse. To be honest, anecdotally, all I hear from many, many people is talking about how can I leave the country or how I can get my children to, to leave the country. And if possibly you could see a major exodus of professionals, people that speak languages, anyone who can get out the country. I think that there is this thing that you hear more and more on the streets. There is this desolation among opponents of Erdogan.
Dorian Jones, DW's Turkey correspondent there in Istanbul. Now, Dorian mentioned how despite fierce criticism of Erdogan's handling of the aftermath of February's deadly earthquakes in southern Turkey, support for his AKP party in the quake-hit area remains strong. The quakes killed more than 50,000 people and displaced millions, many of whom were already struggling due to high unemployment and decades-high inflation. Despite strong election campaigns and promises from both candidates, many issues relating to the quakes still remain unclear. Natalie Carney travelled to southern Turkey to find out more. Erjan Gülay is desperately searching for his 24-year-old son, Mustafa. He's not been seen since February 6th. The building Mustafa, an architect, was living in, in the southern city of Eskandaron, came crashing down during the first earthquake. He was sometimes with me, but from time to time he stayed in that building, which is now in ruins. Coincidentally, he insisted on staying there that day, arguing that he had to work in the morning. I said, okay, son. For nine days, Erjan, his wife and their two other children dug through the rubble of that collapsed building, along with the rescue workers, praying that they would find something, anything, of Mustafa. Friends in other apartments said that he was taken away by ambulance. We visited around 20 cities. We couldn't find him in any hospital. The family gave authorities DNA samples, but have still heard nothing back. Three months since those deadly twin earthquakes that killed more than 50,000 people in Turkey and northern Syria, many loved ones are still unaccounted for. And at the same time, hundreds of bodies, including those of children, are still without identities. Dr. Ahmed Hilal is the chairman of the Council of Forensic Medicine in Turkey and has been working on reconnecting those bodies with loved ones. First of all, the remains are defined by age, height, hair color, gender and eye color. Then features on their body, surgical scars, birthmarks, etc. are noted. Fingerprints are taken. This information is then checked against a registry provided by searching family members. When relatives apply, their photos and medical characteristics are noted and DNA is taken from them. When there's a DNA match establishing identity, the body is handed over to the relatives. However, Erjan says not even a fingerprint of his Mustafa can be traced. If there was a fingerprint for us, for example, we would have found our child. Maybe we'll still find him. Maybe he died and was buried somewhere. We don't know about that either. In the province of Hatay, one of the worst affected regions, hundreds, if not thousands, of wooden markers protrude from freshly dug graves. Each has a number written on it with thick black marker, corresponding to the identifying information taken from the body that lies underneath. Murat Usun is clinging to hope that his two nephews, 13-year-old Ismet and 9-year-old Suraj, are not among them. Their father, Murat's brother, along with their mother, were killed when their six-story building in the city of Nurda collapsed to the ground in the early hours of February 6th. While their bodies were pulled out of the rubble, there has been no sign of Ismet and Suraj. Murat says he has officially declared them missing and has even opened the grave of his dead brother, their father, to collect his DNA. He is still waiting for results. I'd just like to know if they're dead or alive. 
I think this is my personal right. I want to have my own funeral for them. While Dr. Hilal's work still continues, sadly, he says, there will be some that are not found and some bodies that are not identified. Undocumented immigrants are hard to find if their relatives don't provide DNA samples or Turkish citizens who have no relatives to match their DNA. Many still blame the government for the high loss of life in February and for what many felt was a slow emergency response. Others, such as Erjan, are also frustrated that not enough was done to reunite missing loved ones. Let me tell you that neither the district office nor the governor's office helped us in any way. I'm looking for my son. I'm looking for my soul. I'd like the government and the state to help me in this matter. I beg you. With Turkey heading to a runoff election May 28th, one could question would those unaccounted for ballots have turned the tides? Natalie Carney, DW, in southern Turkey. The term wartime economy brings to mind desperate measures. Governments reconfiguring their entire economic systems to prioritize production for their war effort. Women filling jobs for missing men. Families planting backyard gardens to supplement their food rations. From the Estonian capital Tallinn, Terry Schultz reports that some European leaders have revived the term now related to Russia's war on Ukraine. The European Union's Commissioner for the Internal Market, Thierry Breton, wants to spur EU governments to speed up manufacturing of ammunition and weapons, both for Ukraine and for their own defense. The ramp-up in production capacity is moving too slowly, so Breton has ramped up his vocabulary. There is, and I say this clearly, the necessity to take the industrial base and move it to a war economy, if you permit me to put it in those terms. Not everyone would permit him to put it in those terms if they actually had a choice. You will not have a positive response to the term war economy in Germany. And it is not the right way to mobilize the effort. That's how Germany's ambassador to Poland, Thomas Bagger, responded to my question at the Leonard Meri Security and Defense Conference in Tallinn, Estonia. Edward Lucas with the Center for European Policy Analysis explains why using terms like war economy is not going to work at the European level. In Germany it has echoes of the Nazi control of the economy with colossal suffering and abuse of the slave laborers. It's a bit like if you said we need to get this up to plantation tempo in the United States that would immediately not be a sign of productivity it would be a sign of the darkest period in American history. See I don't think you solve this with slogans you solve this by actually getting round a table and taking difficult financial and regulatory decisions that create the outcome you want. Ben Tallis, with the German Council on Foreign Relations, points out that leaders seem to be using the term rather carelessly, since it would require follow-up we're not seeing. It's interesting that the French commissioner is using this term, uh, Emmanuel Macron has used this term, and it seems to be using the words in place of taking the actions, because this would have a lot of implications. It would mean a lot of state control over the economy and state guidance over the economy. It would probably mean rationing of different kinds, which would send a very interesting signal to European populations, one that I don't think the current generation of politicians in Western Europe are willing to, to send. Natalie Tocci, who runs the Italian Institute of International Affairs, says it's understandable why some EU officials are trying out the term. They have to bridge this gap in threat perception across Europe, especially now that they're mobilizing parts of the EU common budget in unconventional ways for the war effort. Persuading 
those member states that are very far from the front line, that rather than spending monies in whatever, Calabria, they've got to spend them on defense industry to send weapons to Ukraine. I mean, it just takes time to make that argument compelling for everyone. In Estonia, Defense Minister Hanno Pevker says citizens don't need any prodding. Estonia has already allocated more than 1% of its GDP for assistance to Ukraine. We don't have to state especially that now we are in in wartime economy. We are saying that uh, we see the threat and and we are saying that everyone in Europe has to come to the reality that uh, Russia is an existential threat. German Ambassador Bagger says his country's conclusion is not necessarily different, even though the way it addresses it may be. What is important is that we don't take the differing perception of existential threat as a fundamental question mark that says the others still don't get it. My point is we do get it, but you do have to understand that history and geography are immensely powerful teachers and they have taught us different lessons. Sławomir Demski of the Polish Institute of International Affairs says he won't criticize politicians for using what he calls big words, but as a military historian, he thinks caution is needed. We are not in the situation that we have to turn our life up and down. But then he adds, not yet, implying there may still be the need for a real wartime economy with all its implications before Russia gets out of Ukraine. Terry Schultz, DW, Tallinn. Still to come on Inside Europe, Western-looking Georgians lament closer ties with the Kremlin. And a reminder, you can get in touch with us anytime. Give us feedback on any of the stories you hear. Just email insideeurope at dw.com. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Last week, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that air traffic will resume between Moscow and Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia. The two countries fought a war in 2008, and Russia occupies 20% of Georgia's territory. But in recent years, Georgia's ruling political party, Georgian Dream, has been criticised for building closer relations with Moscow and distancing themselves from the West. And as Levi Bridges reports from Tbilisi, the actions of Georgia's government could hurt the country's bid to become part of the European Union. Walking around Tbilisi, you see the EU flag hanging from apartment windows everywhere. For Georgians, the flag is a symbol of how they firmly see themselves as a European nation. The flag hangs over government buildings too, because Georgia is a member of the Council of Europe, a human rights organization, which also uses the EU flag. Even at a children's amusement park in Tbilisi, I see the EU flag flying above amusement park rides. I asked 65-year-old Benzina Tsutsumia, who runs the bumper cars here at the amusement park, how he feels about joining the EU. 
Of course, most Georgians want to join the EU. Europe represents stability and progress. During the Soviet Union, Georgia was closed off from the world. So joining Europe would help the country open up to a wider, more multicultural society. Georgia was once considered a front-runner in countries seeking membership to both the EU and NATO. Last summer, both Ukraine and Moldova received recommendations to become full candidates for EU membership. But Georgia, which also applied, didn't receive the same offer. Instead, the EU gave Georgia a list of tasks it needs to fulfill, such as reforming the judiciary, in order to become an EU candidate. Sonia Schiffers is the director of the Heinrich Buell Foundation's office in Tbilisi, a think tank associated with the German Green Party. She says Georgia hasn't taken the necessary steps to win over the EU. The Georgian government, unfortunately, has not really developed uh, in the direction of support for democracy and human rights. This is why Georgia is not going towards democratization, but actually in the opposite direction. Georgia's politics is dominated by a party called Georgian Dream that was founded by a Georgian billionaire named Bidzina Ivanishvili, who made a fortune in Russia. Recently, some members of the party have been openly hostile to American and EU officials, and other politicians formerly associated with Georgian Dream are accused of spreading anti-Western conspiracy theories. That's why I call treasonous what our government is doing now. Instead of lobbying that we are natural and historic part of Western civilization, they are alienating us from our allies. Giga Bokaria is with the opposition party European Georgia. He doesn't like how Georgian Dream's actions make it seem like the party sympathizes with Russia. For example, recently, high-profile members of Russia's opposition haven't been allowed to enter Georgia. I have a legitimate reason to believe that in those cases, it's the Georgian government's direct cooperation with Putin's regime, just to demonstrate that they are not helping those who are against Putin. Inside Georgia's parliament, I took some of these concerns to Georgi Halashvili, a politician with Georgian Dream and the deputy chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. And what do you think about the criticism that Georgian Dream not being harsh enough on Russia? Or... We are about 40 times smaller than Russia by population and infinitesimal in terms of resources and territory. Had we been a member of NATO, we would have been as courageous as the Baltic states, of course. But in the absence of any security guarantees from Russia, how can we risk lives of our population just by challenging Russia when that's very, very dangerous to do? Politicians with Georgian Dream argue that by trying not to anger Russia, they're making a pragmatic security decision. But Corneli Kakachia, director of the Tbilisi think tank, the Georgian Institute of Politics, doesn't believe it's possible to maintain a relationship with both the West and Russia. This is very dangerous because we are not a member of EU, neither NATO. So if tomorrow Russia invades Georgia again, there's nobody who can help Georgia. But Georgian Dream's political messaging doesn't turn off all Georgians. Back at the amusement park, I asked Bidzina Tsutsumia, who runs the bumper cars, what he makes of the government's position toward Russia. We're not opposed to Russia. We just want Russia to become more like Europe, a peaceful Russia that thinks about the environment, stability and goodwill. But keeping relations open with Moscow will make Georgia's chances of joining the EU much more difficult. 
Levi Bridges, DW, Tbilisi, Georgia. We want to help ensure that you never miss an episode of Inside Europe. A reminder that you can hit the subscribe button wherever you go to get your podcasts. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. In the next half hour, as Western defense systems repel Russian missiles in Ukraine, how are Kyiv residents coping with the on-off threat? Voters on La Palma head to the ballot box for the first time since the volcanic eruption two years ago. We have enough money in the country to respond in a, in a different way, to give the money, all the money the people lost, and they should have it in their pockets. For those who lost loved ones during COVID, a Dutch art gallery gives them a chance to grieve. And why Estonia's capital is moving to several different beats. From Bonn, Germany, you're listening to Inside Europe. Last weekend, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky won a new military aid commitment from Germany worth nearly 3 billion euros, while France and the UK also promised further armaments. As he was completing a tour of European capitals, the skies over his capital, Kyiv, lit up once again with a barrage of Russian missiles. It was very difficult to leave this night because we don't hear these attacks and such bombs for a lot of time, maybe for several several weeks or several months. You just get used to it and then you just off. <laughs> yeah, it's like been a year, so that's why we just got used to it. Keep residents there, taking what Ukrainian officials described as an exceptionally intense onslaught in their stride. Missile defense systems, which Zelensky battled hard to persuade Western allies to deliver, successfully repelled most of the projectiles. But as Ukraine prepares its long-awaited counteroffensive, Kyiv residents are only too aware that they remain a key target for the Kremlin. For more on how they're coping, I spoke to DW's correspondent in Kyiv, Nick Connolly. He started by telling me how this bombardment felt different to others the capital has experienced. It was a lot more compact this time. So basically within the space of 15, 20 minutes, it was incredibly loud. It really felt like these missiles were being intercepted above our heads here in the centre of Kiev. It was very bright, even with curtains closed, it really felt like someone was shining a kind of professional torch through your window. You could feel the windows shaking. It sounded like people were throwing bottles on the ground. That was obviously debris falling. And... Uh, and I think there was a real sense that the Russians were getting frustrated that Ukraine's air defences were working too well. They were trying to overwhelm the defenders of Kiev with 
different systems in at the same time, whereas previously they're normally spread out over a couple of hours, giving time to find new targets and to readjust. And initially we were told that the Ukrainians would be able to shoot down all of these missiles. But it now seems, at least according to some reports, that at least part of one of the American-supplied Patriot missile systems was damaged. I think it's important to say that these systems normally consist of several different units and they're spread out for safety reasons. So I, I don't think this means a full wipeout, but it does seem that for once those Russian claims are at least in part justified. And I think what surprised a lot of people is that these defense systems were able to shoot down Russian hypersonic missiles. This is the very latest technology. I thought it was near impossible to intercept them. Exactly. And I think that was very embarrassing for the Russian leadership because after Ukraine had done better than anyone expected and most of the more regular affordable weapons that are available in large numbers proved to be ineffective against those modern systems that Ukraine had received from Germany from other European countries, that was the last hope that this would get past everything that Ukraine had. And that realization now that uh, the Patriot systems and the Ukrainians hope a new system coming from France and Italy, SAMT, that those will both be able to deal with these so-called hypersonic missiles. And that really came as a blow. And definitely here in Kiev, you really do feel pretty well protected. The main problem is normally just from falling debris. You get small fires, cars that are damaged. The bigger picture is that this is a city that is largely safe and where people don't go down to the bomb raid shelters anymore, unlike cities close to the front lines that A, are close to the Russians and B, just aren't as much of a priority and where Ukraine doesn't have the resources to give them the same kind of protection. Fair enough. So people aren't using bomb shelters in Kyiv like they were in the first stages of the war. But at the same time, there is this constant sense of anxiety because they really don't know what's going to happen next. What is the sense that you get from speaking to people in the capital? I think people are just tired of being afraid. That's something you hear from people a lot. They just don't have the energy. They want to go about their lives. They want to go to work. They want to do other things. They're not going to spend the whole night in the metro or in their cellars. Most people end up going to their bathrooms. They're advised to try and put two walls between themselves and the outside. But increasingly, you see most people not even doing that. There is a certain, I guess, fatalism. People get used to these risks, these dangers, and they are painfully aware that they are still here in Kiev compared to cities like Kharkiv, which is only 30 kilometers from the Russian border, or uh, Mykolaiv, which is close to Russian-occupied Crimea, they are still in a much better position here. But it is tiring, and you see that people putting that fear away or that anxiety, suppressing it, trying to kind of stay positive and focus on daily life, earning a living, and dealing with, with that very present risk. We keep hearing how Ukraine is preparing a counter-offensive against Russian forces and President Zelensky won new military support from European allies last weekend. How significant is this new commitment from the likes of Germany, France and the UK? I think it is a question of the West's red lines or taboos about supplying weapons to Ukraine being broken time and time again. The Ukrainians are told every time, this is impossible, we can't send you tanks, that would risk an escalation with Russia, we can't send you more complicated systems because you don't have the time to get ready or you don't have the expertise to deal with these very complex systems. And every time those warnings, those naysayers have been basically proved wrong, the Ukrainians have been very good at appealing to public opinion in Western countries and keeping their demands in the media. And every time they have eventually got what they wanted. It's just a different question about how fast Western European countries are going to be able to deliver on those promises right now. The focus is on fighter jets. There's a question there about training of pilots, but also infrastructure. Will Ukraine be able to build the kinds of bases and the kinds of logistics centers in the middle of a war 
without Russia destroying everything they tried to build. There's no real willingness from NATO countries right now to allow Ukrainian fighter jets to go to Poland or other NATO country bases to refuel or to be repaired. So this is all a very complex thing, but certainly the Ukrainians are sticking to their guns. And on his visit to Berlin, Zelensky picked up a promise for nearly 3 billion euros worth of military aid. That's by far the biggest single package that Germany has agreed on since this war began. And if even Germany, that was so reluctant to talk about military aid, is making such strides and really getting out of its comfort zone, then I think the same definitely goes for countries that are maybe historically more open to this kind of military cooperation. We're seeing now potentially the Netherlands and the UK talking about some kind of fighter jet coalition trying to find those F-16 jets that Ukraine needs. There is a sense that this might not help for the counteroffensive now. It's going to take months and maybe years, but certainly this is something that Ukraine very definitely needs to be better protected from Russia in the future. And so what is Zelensky waiting for now before launching the counteroffensive? I think right now we're in the kind of phony war stage of the kind of counteroffensive. It's all about misinformation, disinformation, lots of very contrary statements being made by top Ukrainian officials, some saying they might need months and months, others saying it could happen any time. I don't think it's really worth taking any of those pronouncements at face value. When you look back at last summer when Ukraine was preparing to take back territory, all the talk was about Kherson, about the south, and in the end they struck near Kharkiv in the east, and Kherson was retaken much later. The bottom line is that Ukraine has received a huge amount of hardware in the last couple of months, and also tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops have been trained in Western countries. They are really now putting new units that haven't been worn down and haven't been exhausted by more than a year of war onto the battlefield. And I think it's a very brave analyst who gives some kind of prediction about when it's going to start. The Ukrainians have been pretty good at keeping information very tightly controlled. And often enough, we actually end up hearing about what's going on the battlefield from Russian military bloggers complaining about uh, lack of supplies uh, for their own troops. There just aren't any journalists working freely in a war zone like this on both sides. That is just the reality. So I think it'll come very suddenly. And I think we'll only work out, we'll realise it started some days after it actually has. Nick Connolly, DW's correspondent in Kyiv. Now let's head to southern Europe and Spain, where regional elections will be held at the end of the month. The results are often a guide for political parties about the mood of the nation ahead of general elections. In the case of the island of La Palma in the Canaries, these will be the first elections since the eruption of the volcano at Cumbra Vieja in September 2021. That eruption lasted three months, causing an unprecedented amount of damage to the island's infrastructure, businesses, mainly banana cultivation, and thousands of homes. But has the work done so far by the authorities won the support of voters? Ashi Sharma visited La Palma to find out more. Well, my full name is Karin Bansberg. I'm from Holland, but I'm now living here 31 years. Salon together. Two little uh, bedrooms. Karin Bansberg lives in a wooden chalet in the town of El Paso. She was given one of 36 wooden homes that were built to help accommodate some of the many thousands of people like her who'd lost their homes in the lava flow from the volcanic eruption. I was in my house when the volcano exploded. All my house was shaking. The furniture, the windows, everything. I take a little bag and put it in the car. And at least I had to leave my home because the volcano crews flourish quickly. I couldn't take anything out of my house. And so you've gone from that to just 
40 square meters. Yes, to the 40 square meters, yes. It's a big difference. The chalet she's living in is meant to be an in-between home where residents rebuild their lives. But owners like Karin have lost out. She didn't have an insurance on her property. As a result, the money she received from state aid amounted to just over €100,000. But the cost of land and building on it has soared since the eruption. There is less land available and many more people looking to either rent or buy. I buy a land and yes, it's really expensive with the little age that we have resived. But I don't think that I can make my house now or finish my house because uh, we have earned really a little bit of aid. Some 7,000 people were affected either by losing their home directly or by abandoning them due to dangerous gases which cascaded on some towns and villages. 18 months on and two towns in the south of the island where the volcano had its greatest impact are ghost towns as dangerously high levels of carbon dioxide have still not made it possible for residents to return. A van with blaring megaphones makes periodic announcements reminding El Paso locals to attend the main theatre hall in the evening. The meeting is to introduce the candidates who will be fighting the elections on behalf of the Canary Coalition Party. Sergio Rodriguez is the party's main leader and also the mayor of El Paso. He's championed the cause of the residents who've lost their homes, arguing that the government of La Palma is more concerned about the island's infrastructure, big business and expanding the tourism industry. It's a position that's winning him a lot of popularity amongst voters. Politicians have the opportunity, have the opportunity to show that uh, politics um, should be a different thing. We have to, to, to be here to respond in these situations. And uh, we don't feel this uh, from, the, from the Spanish government and uh, from the Canadian government. What do you feel were the mistakes? And, and if you do become the president, what are the immediate changes that you're going to bring? No, I, I think they, they haven't uh, thought about people, about families that has, uh, have lost uh, everything. They haven't understood the situation and they haven't put people in front of the problem. We have enough money in the country to respond in a, in a different way. It shouldn't be a problem to give the money, all the money the people lost, and they should have it in their pockets. The Spanish government gave over 150 million euros in immediate aid, and the government of La Palma also put aside some 80 million euros. But most of this money was earmarked for the reconstruction work, paying to bring in over 2,000 specialist workers to help with the clear-up operation, and importantly for the island to get the banana industry, its main source of income, up and running again. Mariano Zapata, a member of the Partido Popular, is the president of the La Palma government. We've been opening roads and setting up public supply networks so that impacted neighborhoods have drinking water. We're also working on the pipeline to restore crop irrigation. It's been a very destructive volcano. More than 4,000 buildings have disappeared and 70 kilometers of highways lost. It's covered more than 300 hectares of crops. And there are still two completely closed-off neighborhoods that people cannot access. I'm standing on the outskirts of the town of El Paso. The volcano behind me is still smoldering away. 
In front of me, on my left, is the new landscape, a black wall of solidified lava glistening in the sun, over 20 meters high in some places. To my right is the more familiar landscape, a sea of green fields dotted with farm buildings here and there. It's in front of this landscape that voters at the end of the month will decide whether those in charge have done enough to get the island back up on its feet or whether their priorities have been aimed in the wrong direction. Ashish Sharma, DW, La Palma. It's May and the streets of Amsterdam are once again bustling with tourists and bicycles, shoppers and stag parties. Beneath the helter-skelter rhythms of everyday life, however, many people are still grappling with grief and trauma. Almost 23,000 people are recorded to have died of COVID-19 in the Netherlands, and the real number is likely to be even higher. In a country with a population of just 17.5 million, that's an awful lot. From Thursday the 18th to Saturday the 20th of May, a multidisciplinary installation in the Papahoy or Parrot Church will give people who come in off the street a space to grieve and to memorialise their lost ones. Combining recorded testimony with sacred laments, light and images and sound, Into the Darkness, Into the Light is open to all. In a way of a taster, here's a sound collage put together by Inside Europe's Kate Laycock. Hello, uh, my name is Kat Carson and I'm the Artistic Director of Ensemble Nauf et Monstre, or Nymphs and Monsters, and I am a singer and musician. I'm Rosie, Rosemary Carlton-Willis, and I'm also a singer with a specialism in Baroque music and Baroque opera, and um, I'm the Artistic Director of this project. My name is Victoria Nikolova. I am a singer, musician, and uh, the visual designer of the whole project. I felt this incredibly strong sense of lack of an opportunity for collective grief and collective acknowledgement of what had happened. And especially because the experience of the last two, three years has been so extraordinarily violent. I really loved this sort of impulse from Rosie to create a space where people could come and contemplate and have that moment of sort of experiencing catharsis in a way for what's what's gone on. One of the people who was in my mind as this idea was developing was Chan Young, Kim Chan Young, who was a very close friend of my mother's and who died during the pandemic, during one of the lockdowns. And he was not actually a death directly from COVID. He was suffering from grief and depression following the loss of his husband in that isolation, unable to have the regular contact that he normally had, including sort of normal weekly meetups with my mum. He became incredibly isolated and um, ended up taking his own life during that time. I had a very hard time reconnecting to the to society as well as uh, just to the real world after the isolation. 
We begin on a train journey, and I think this was on, on the base of everything, because every, every process is a journey, and in the Netherlands, we, one way or another, end up on a train. And the sound will be spread all around the church, uh, through seven, eight different speakers, and the beautiful voices of uh, Kat and Rosie will be sounding from various directions, in some points manipulated by Andrew. Andrew Hopper, who made the, the soundscape, and of course uh, some cello and uh, tioba, which are going to be mixed with everything. So the, the sound gets very bright and very positive at moments, uh, and also gets deeper and darker, allowing this meditative, lower, vibrant vibrations to go through the space. And I really uh, was inspired by the by the name of the church, Papageikerk. The papagei is the, um, the Amsterdam parrots, which there are these um, beautiful flocks of green parakeets that have naturalized in Amsterdam and they're a really sort of lovely and characteristic aspect of life here. We look to a sort of 18th century concept of the doctrine of the passions, which believed that the best way to sort of process your feelings was to go and experience music, theatre, drama that allowed you to feel all of the things that are not really acceptable in society. And through that, you gained catharsis. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. And there are so many incredibly powerful images like that that I hope speak to a really wider experience. And that soundscape was compiled by Kate Laycock. A reminder that you can stay up to date with all that happens in Europe throughout the week on our website, dw.com, or check out the DW Europe social media pages. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. Finally this week, with the warmer spring temperatures across Europe, comes the continent's concert and festival season. In Estonia, festivals like Jazz Car and Tallinn Music Week have turned the capital into a beehive of musical culture over the past three weeks. Music has long been a pillar of Estonia's identity, and the struggle to regain independence from the Soviet Union in 1991 was in fact called the Singing Revolution. During the city's song festivals, attendees can hear anything from handbell music and bagpipe melodies to modern jazz and heavy metal. Our reporter Ben Bathger travelled to Tallinn to feel the pulse of the country's vibrant music scene. At last weekend's Eurovision Song Contest in Liverpool, 20-year-old Alika Milova represented Estonia with her song Bridges. 
finishing 8th out of 26 acts, she had one of the country's more successful performances since 2001, when the small Baltic nation became the first former Soviet country to win the Eurovision. The winner back then, rock singer Tanel Pada, was part of a special concert on Europe Day in Tallinn last week. The headliner for the Europe Day concert was none other than Kalush Orchestra, last year's Eurovision winner from Ukraine. I got a chance to talk to them shortly before they took the stage. Music is a universal language and it's only through music that we understand each other and can raise our spirits. It's a language for good in the whole world. In Estonia, music and song have long played a significant role in culture and everyday life. Estonians use singing to celebrate and preserve their language and traditions under Danish, Swedish, German and Soviet occupation. Starting in June 1988, the so-called singing revolution saw large groups of Estonians gathering to sing as a form of protest until daybreak. It was through this galvanizing effect of singing that the country peacefully regained independence in 1991. Another hallmark of Estonian musical culture is choir singing, which gained widespread popularity during Estonia's so-called National Awakening in the late 19th century. The Estonian Academy of Music and Theatre Choir, or EAMT Choir, is one of the country's more than 1,000. To put things into perspective, in 2019, some 40,000 people, or roughly 1 in 30 Estonians, sang in choirs. The EAMT Choir performed last weekend during Tallinn Music Week, an annual music and culture festival that this year featured 188 artists from 41 countries. Another artist was Scottish art-pop duo Post Coal Prom Queen. Lily Hyam and Gordon Johnston, whose Tallinn concert was their first ever gig outside the UK, were impressed with the variety and scope of Estonia's music scene. You've got like 17-year-old singer-songwriters, you've got like 50-year-old ska bands, you've got you know, turbo folk, you've got everything in between. Like the, the Estonian music scene has everything. It's like any like massive country and it's crammed it down into a, a country of a population of 1.8 million, which is wild. Glasgow is almost that size and Glasgow doesn't have turbo folk. One of the six Ukrainian artists at this year's Telemusic Week was Komisia, a four-piece band from Kyiv that combines indie, pop, house, funk and disco elements. Hello, my name is Artur Lesny. I'm a member of Ukrainian band Komisia. We performed here two times. We replaced Cipher Blood because they couldn't cross the border of Ukraine to get to Tallinn. It's really hard for cultural people of Ukraine to leave the country. Lisny and the three other band members didn't get permission to leave Ukraine from the Ministry of Culture until three hours before they arrived at the border, he says. To Lisny, playing in Estonia was a very emotional experience. Our saxophone player, he is on the front line from the very first days. It was really tough to understand that we are here in safe space doing our cultural business, but he has to fight for all of us. More than a few musicians have even died defending Ukraine against the Russian aggressor, including one of Lisny's friends. Aside from Tallinn Music Week, launched in 2009, Estonia is also home to a number of other international annual festivals. 
Viljandi Folk Music Festival, Tallinn Chamber Music Festival, the Estonian Music Days and Jazz Car Festival, which celebrated its 34th anniversary in April. During its eight days, close to 20,000 jazz lovers attended over 100 musical events featuring artists from 18 countries like popular soul jazz group The Baylor Project from New York City. Among the more eclectic performances was a joint Polish and Estonian band whose three members first performed at Katowice Jazz Art Festival in Poland a few days before Jazzcar. Estonian composer and double bass player Mingo Randi says both gigs were almost completely improvised. We said that we have to reach this country, but we didn't decide if we're going by bus or train <laughs> or walking, you know. And we decided that we will have some pit stops and then we will go across mountains. Both Tallinn and Katowice are UNESCO cities of music, a network of 43 cities around the globe that also includes Auckland, Hanover, Kansas City and Varanasi. With music ranging from tambourine melodies to heavy metal, handbell music to reggaeton, choral music to electrofolk, Estonia punches way above its weight when it comes to music, concerts and festivals. One of the key factors is that singing remains a living tradition in Estonia, thanks in no small part to song festivals that span generations and music genres. Moreover, Estonia is one of the few countries in the world where musical education is a compulsory part of general education. Post-call prom queen's Gordon Johnson believes the astonishing diversity and subcultures will soon wow crowds beyond Estonia, too. I think we're going to see way, way more of Estonian bands in the very, very near future. Ben Bartke, DW, Tallinn. And wherever you get your podcasts, remember to hit the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode of Inside Europe. We're also grateful for any positive reviews as they help other people to find our show. This program was brought to you by Helen Sini and sound engineers Jürgen Kuhn and Mikhail Springer. And I'm Nick Martin. Thanks for tuning in. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany.